Welcome to Health Talks Now, bringing you the facts you need to keep you and your family well. We're happy you're tuning in today. Baptist Health is committed to providing compassionate, high-quality care that is centered on you. Listen to all of our podcasts to hear from Baptist Health physicians about the latest medical advancements and treatments. And get trusted information on timely health topics from our healthcare professionals. Whether you want to learn more about a specific condition or procedure or find tips for living a healthy lifestyle, Baptist Health is here to help you become a healthier you. This episode is going to be a favorite, I can already tell. Kendra and I are both in our 30s, and we've been eagerly anticipating having this discussion with someone who can relate to us and to so many of our listeners, and who has the clinical knowledge to shed light, tips, insight, and humor. That's right. Women in your 30s and 40s, rejoice. Today, we're asking all the questions you've been wondering about these decades and the changes they bring. And we have the perfect guest to provide the answers. We're joined on the phone today by Dr. Wanda Lowe, a primary care physician with Baptist Health Medical Group, to unpack what's happening to women's bodies in the decades when we still feel young, but things aren't the same as they used to be when we were in our 20s. (sighs) That's the truth. All you ladies listening know exactly what we're talking about, so you'll want to listen in to today's episode and share these tips with your girlfriends. Let's get started. Well, Dr. Lowe, thank you so much for joining us on the phone today. We are really excited to dive into this subject with you. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation, and hopefully it'll be fun and helpful for all of us. Okay, so I'm really excited to catch up with you because you may or may not remember, but I had the pleasure of helping onboard you when you joined Baptist Health. So this is kind of a full circle moment for me. So I know that you're a University of Louisville Medical School grad and that you went on to do your family medicine residency there as well. But what really stood out to me as I remember looking back at your onboarding process was all of your volunteer and mission work. So tell us about your medical mission trips to Brazil and traveling deep into the Amazon River by boat. How did these opportunities come about? What did you learn personally and professionally? And how did these experiences change you as a doctor and as a woman? Well, thank you. Yeah, I I would say probably medical missions has shaped me um, greatly. My first medical mission trip, I was actually 13. So my parents would lead medical mission trips when I was young, and so that's kind of how I got introduced to medicine to begin with, going back to my birth country in Honduras. When I found other opportunities, I would just kind of jump at them. The Brazil opportunity actually came through the medical school. So I went, I think I was maybe a third-year medical student, maybe a fourth-year medical student, with one of our professors at UofL, who is amazing, Dr. Wheeler, and it was a two-week trip and we would travel down essentially every year twice a year we go down and um and just deliver care and it's become regular enough so he and his wife have been going down often enough that a lot of people consider them like their primary care doctors and um, check in with them regularly so it's really sweet just those sweet relationships that they have with a lot of the brazilian people but we would live on a boat so it has two floors so the first floor was where um, we would have our food no kidding um, a lot of where you know a lot of living quarters would be and then the second floor is where all the hammocks were so we would sleep on the hammocks and essentially like dock in at different villages um, wow kind of deep into the amazon river and deliver care in schools and kind of whatever setting we had availability but yeah i mean it challenged me a lot it was 
the first time, you know, all the trips before that had been more as an interpreter or something along those lines. Sure. So it challenged me to think of solutions when I don't mm-hmm. have the normal testing opportunities I have. Like Makes it really sense. sharpened more of my physical exam skills because you can't do an x-ray. You can't right. get lab work and just basic things like that. So it, it was, yeah, really shaping. So I went again in residency and, um, also, was just a great opportunity for teaching and giving back to students. I learned a number of my procedures there. I learned how to do some eye surgeries and things wow. that I would never do here. But it definitely, you know, just kind of helps build confidence. And mm-hmm. I think sure. build like, oh, I can do this. Like, right. Yeah, I, I can do something. Because there's so many times as you're, as you're in training and growing and learning, you just kind of forget what you know. Yeah. And those opportunities really challenged me. And they helped me to be creative and to use the the resources that I had to find a solution for the person who's sitting in front of me, even thinking outside of the box for, you know, maybe your back pains because you're sleeping on the ground. And, right. you know, like, what are solutions that we can come up with with the resources you have to help this? And what can we do to, to bring in relief and help and, and really, um, yeah, better help to those communities? So I, I loved it. And I, I would love to go back there. Um, yeah, just sweet, sweet, precious people. I can imagine how the disparity of coming back to the U.S. and you get back into the infrastructure that we have and the resources and the tools that we have in our, yeah, in our healthcare industry, and then just realizing how grateful we should be. Yeah, right. That's it. I think that's really key because it's so easy to forget what we have and the Mm -hmm. resources that we have. And so, you know, even during this pandemic time, I've been reminding patients of that and just like, yeah, like this is hard and it's frustrating to wear masks and it's frustrating to do all these things, mm-hmm. but really like we're so fortunate. Like we have access to medical care, we have hospitals, yeah. we have doctors that do a good job and, and that's a privilege. And so we're so honored to have that. And there are people across the world that would just love to be in our shoes. And so just to be thankful for what we have, even if it may not be like what it could be yeah. <laughs> or what we'd want it to be, right. I think it can be helpful just to keep us from becoming bitter or becoming mm-hmm. kind of hard. Ungrateful. You know? Sure. Well, let's get into it. Skin, perimenopause, feeling blah, and changes to your body. You ready? Okay, let's go. Let's talk first about our skin because maybe it's because it's such an immediate tell of someone's age, but there's a lot of focus in our society on keeping women's skin from showing a single sign of aging seems like there's a million things out there, and many of us are suckers for products and promises of anti-aging and immediate results. Kendra and I both have subscriptions to beauty and skincare boxes each month for new products, but what do we really need to know? What recommendations do you have to keep skin hydrated, fresh, and youthful? It's so hard because the, the honest answer are just really the simple things, and yeah. I think sometimes we try to make it complicated. But, it, I mean, it starts out with, you know, wearing sunscreen and mm-hmm, protecting sure. your skin from excessive sun exposure, mm-hmm. from not smoking. That's, those are probably the two biggest things you can do to keep your skin healthy, to keep it, it looking healthy as well as being healthy. And then, you know, washing your skin regularly, hydrating it regularly, getting good sleep and hydration. All of those things matter. And, and then genetics is a big part of it, too. And mm. so... Um, it's, it's definitely multiple factors, but I think sometimes we try to make it more complicated than it is, or we try to cheat our way out of wearing sunscreens and 
doing the things we know we need to do. But those things are probably, the, honestly, the biggest factors. So, yeah, it's fun. I mean, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy thinking about, like, topical vitamin C or yeah. doing collagen or all these kinds of things. But, but the reality is it's, it's honestly just the day in and day out. Are you in the sun a long time? Are you, you know, what are, what are, what are you doing with your skin? How are you treating your skin from a, from a day-to-day standpoint? That's so telling of our society, though, right? We, we often overlook the essential, the foundational things that would really make the biggest impact. And we're on to the next, what's the next quick fix cure instead of just making sure that we're drinking enough water every single day over our whole lifetime. It's like, well, what can I put on my skin tonight Mm -hmm. for immediate gratification? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, so you mentioned sunscreen. Let's dig into that a little bit more. When you're young, there's almost an avoidance to wearing sunscreen or using clothing or hats to protect. But as we age, there's actually more and more emphasis I see on products with SPF and making sure that you're taking precautions when you're outside. So what do you see in your practice as it relates to sun exposure and how can those early choices impact women later in their life? Mm-hmm. So I agree. I think it's something as we're younger, it's not something that's on our radar, but even as we approach our early 30s, a lot of us start to get those signs of sunspots or darkening blanches on our skin mm-hmm. or different things from a cosmetic standpoint that matter to us, right? right? And so I think it goes back to, you know, what we view as being healthy and good, um, but it matters what we do in our 20s and our teens to our skin. So I think part of it is even reshaping our culture and reshaping, yeah. like, the view of being tan and all those kinds of things. So I'm just kind of embracing your skin and the beauty that it is and and enjoying it. In general, so like basic rules of thumb, so wearing SPF 30 every day is a great idea. Um, I would probably wear it on your face, ironically on your hands and your arms and on your legs. Most women that we see with new skin cancers actually show skin cancers on their legs. And then a lot of times on their arms. And so those are just kind of telling spots that I think sometimes we overlook when sure. we're putting on sunscreen because a lot of times if we're wearing shorts or a dress or something, we're not getting sunburned, and so we just forget to apply SPF there. Um, but later on in life, and you know, the, the 50s and 60s time frame, that's when we start to see those changes with skin cancers. So then, you know, that's the kind of next thing. So I think from a from a doctor's perspective, I think skin cancer would be really big on my radar from a sun exposure standpoint. Mm-hmm. So I do think, you know, just looking at your skin, seeing if you have new molds, are they changing? Are they getting bigger? Do they have multiple colors on mm-hmm. the inside? Does it have a regular border? Does it seem to be different than all the rest? And if you have something like that, just bring it up to your doctor for your regular physical, and they may say, you know what, we need to set you up with a dermatologist. Mm-hmm. Um and start getting annual skin exams. If you know you've had a history with a lot of sun exposure or a lot of burns, skin poisoning, or if you have a family history with like melanoma, especially, um, but even basal cell or squamous cell cancers, it probably would be good just to kind of set up with a dermatologist and get your annual checks and and, and just kind of be on top of it. Um, usually if we catch things early on, it can be much better in terms of prognosis or surgeries or how invasive we need to be if we're more proactive with getting those things checked. Gosh, you're making me think too about the hands. That's something, Mm -hmm. I mean, people don't typically, I've never seen anyone just like slather their hands in sunscreen. If you think about it, you see a lot of skin yeah. aging on the hands. Absolutely. And it's thinner skin too, and it can tell your age too. Yeah. 
That's such a great tip. All right, happy hour. We've had a discussion on a prior episode about moderation, so we know the importance Mm -hmm. of consuming responsibly. But beyond the obvious physical and mental health benefits of drinking in moderation, let's look specifically at the effects of skin and hair. It's very easy to identify someone who's been a long-term smoker by their physical effects to the body, and I think the same goes for someone who's a heavy drinker. But how does moderate alcohol consumption affect a woman's appearance over time? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So, you know, I think it's multiple factors, and and it also depends on how you would define moderate alcohol consumption. That's a good point. Um, mm-hmm. In general, if you have someone who's, who's had enough alcohol to impact their liver's function, mm-hmm. then this is honestly a really big and complicated conversation, but the venous system, your body's ability to, to make blood clots and all those things is impaired. And so you start to get splotching of the skins and little spider web kind of um, findings on the skin. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of irregularity. Um, a lot of my patients who are heavy, heavy alcohol drinkers will get significant swelling. So a lot of times you may not see it as much in the face, but in the feet or in the abdomen are probably the areas where we yeah. see those changes the most. And so significant edema. I've had, um, I can think of a couple patients who were in their 30s, heavy drinkers. And then, you know, you just look at them and their skin really is blotchy. And it really is almost like shiny because of the amount of swelling. It just doesn't look healthy. And then with, you know, getting involved with AA and going through the appropriate processes to help them come back to a place of sobriety, like their skin has actually transformed. So it is possible depending on how far you've gone or how far in you are to kind of get some of that back. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's honestly, it's a really complicated conversation. Yeah, um, sure. But yeah, it, it definitely affects our skin. It affects our health. Um, and probably more with weight, I would say, for, for most, the average woman who's not an alcoholic, you know, probably more with abdominal obesity and, mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. Even just the simple idea of it, it contains, you'd probably eat more than you normally would and it's full of empty calories mm-hmm. in addition. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk now about a topic that doesn't seem to get a lot of coverage, perimenopause. We hear a lot about the onset of menopause in your 50s, but women in their late 30s to 40s need to listen up. Let's start by defining it. What exactly is perimenopause and when does it typically begin? <laughs> So these are great questions. Um, so perimenopause is talking about the time where um, you are before menopause, so you haven't gone through the men- menopausal symptoms yet, but you're starting to have the lowering of some of the female hormones. So your estrogen and your progesterone are starting to drop. Maybe your periods are becoming more infrequent. Maybe you're getting hot flashes. Okay. Maybe you're becoming more moody. So you might be noticing some of those changes with some of those hormonal kind of changes, and that can vary from patient to patient. I would say, on average, it tends to start in the 40s, but there are some women who start to show symptoms in their 30s. Wow. But yeah, probably around that time frame or so. Okay. Hmm. So it's caused then, you said, by a drop in the hormonal levels, like estrogen or... Okay. Gotcha. So I think a lot of people associate menopause with mood swings, hot flashes, and the like, what we mentioned. Are there other symptoms of perimenopause that maybe aren't as common or that people may tend to kind of slough off or dismiss? Hmm. I think probably the one that I see the most is probably with sleep, like changes to pattern of sleep or okay. difficulty sleeping. I would say moodiness and hot flashes are the most common. You will get possible more vaginal dryness that tends to be more after menopause than perimenopause. 
but some of them will start to have like recurrent UTIs or different things from just decreased estrogen within the vagina and having more dryness and thinning of the skin there. Okay. And um, you can even have painless intercourse and different things like that. But the, those tend to be more common during this menopausal symptom than, than perimenopause. Um, so it, it, it can vary from patient to patient. But if you have questions about it, I would probably talk to your doctor and kind sure. of see what what things are looking like, but it, it can vary from patient to patient. Do you ever see that patients that are experiencing or heading into that perimenopause or even to the menopause age, do you find that they have an increase in any anxiety or depression, either because of hormonal shifts or maybe because of their lifestyle changing, that that may trigger some depression in people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I honestly think we see that at all ages and stages of life. Yeah. Um, there is a moodiness that can happen with those estrogen levels dropping specifically. Mm-hmm. So we do see more of that. Um, and there's ways to treat that that can be really helpful just to kind of help that irritability kind of period, if you will, during the perimenopause, the menopausal stages. But yeah, it's definitely something that we see pretty regularly. Yeah, that's a good transition. Although we're beginning to see a breakdown of the stigma and this condition discussed more frequently, we wonder if there's an awareness problem, right? Like instead of acceptance, do we have an awareness problem? We've had discussions in prior episodes with behavioral health clinicians, but let's talk about these feelings. Like if you're feeling in a funk, lack of motivation, unexplainable withdrawal or lack of interest, kind of a more mild bread and butter-esque depression that one can seek the advice from their primary care. I think oftentimes, and I can even speak just from my personal experience, the difficulty in recognizing a mild to a moderate depression when you're not struggling to maybe get out of bed in the morning or having self-harming thoughts, but maybe you find yourself saying things like, gosh, things feel so heavy lately. Do you see this trend in your practice as well, just a lack of awareness that maybe they're having these feelings but not recognizing them as depression because women are taught to push through, right? Right, right. And I think there's also a stigma with it, right? I think there's a, there's this feeling of if I acknowledge these feelings, then I'm I'm being weak, yeah. or that this is a sign of something scarier to come. Yeah. And also, I think there's a fear of medication, and mm-hmm. and, and some of that I understand. Like, I think it's good to treat things with lifestyle first, you know, mm-hmm. and saying, okay, like if I'm noticing these things, are there things I can change with how I'm living? Do I need to exercise more? How yeah. about my sleep pattern? How about my caffeine intake or smoking or alcohol intake or how I'm eating. Am I eating foods that are high in sugar and giving me these drops and blood sugar that are causing my energy to drop? So there's there's definitely a lot of things to look into the symptoms that can contribute to them. But I think especially, so I, I think it's helpful to, to be thoughtful and, and even with kind of your routine exam, just seeing how am I doing from a mental health standpoint? Yeah. I have a kind of train of thought of like treating ourselves, mind, body, spirit, and treating our whole self. And so from a mental health standpoint, like, you know, are you withdrawing? Are you, is this affecting your relationships? Is this affecting how you eat? Are you overeating? Are you undereating? Are you, is it affecting your interest in doing things that you normally would? Are you just kind of detaching from life? Like those, those kinds of things are, are really not healthy. And so like, how can we address them? And so that's where medications can really help jumpstart the process as you kind of work through the other lifestyle pieces 
And I think there's also a fear that once you start a medication for depression or anxiety that you're on it for life. Right. Um, and that's also not true. So, you know, there's there's definitely, um, I think, a lot of, of the misconceptions about it, which can just be helpful, I think, just to talk about it and Absolutely. bring it up and have someone that you can trust that understands these things and, and can be helpful. We'll be right back. A woman's body is capable of phenomenal things. But being a woman also comes with unique health challenges. At Baptist Health, we're dedicated to providing women the services they need to protect their health at every age and stage. From attentive mother and baby care to comprehensive breast health and primary care services, we partner with women to help you attain your very best health throughout your life. To find a provider near you, visit baptisthealth.com slash provider. And we're back with Dr. Wanda Lowe. I love what you said about just checking in with yourself monthly because we're, as women, you know, we're told to check your skin often. Make sure you don't have any changes in your skin. Just do a check of your breasts. Make sure you know what's normal for you and what's not normal for you. But like you said, a lot of times with stress or with our emotions, we're kind of like, plow through, sis, keep going to the next thing. You got to be a great mom. You got to do this. You got to do this. And it sounds radical, but it's so normal. You know, what a great idea. That's part of to, self-care. To take a monthly check yeah. every month to be like, how am I feeling? Yeah. It would put it into perspective of what you're balancing on your plate that month too. Yeah. To shift of there's a lot going on. And, and is this normal to. for me? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. wait. Actually, last month when I checked in with myself, I wasn't this stressed. What changed? Right. Right. Genius. And there's different kinds of rest too, you know? So maybe someone's doing a lot of work with like teaching their kids right now, right? Yeah. So they're doing a lot of like mental and like emotional work. So then maybe, you know, it's like, oh, well, maybe I need to rest in ways that are mental and emotional rest for me. So maybe that's being outside, maybe that's artwork, maybe that's like different ways to such a good distinction me in these different areas. And so it does take slowing down. It does take maybe some journaling and thinking through it, maybe seeking a counselor to kind of help navigate some of that, but it can be incredibly helpful and really lead to better quality of life. I love this. So if someone's listening right now and they're recognizing these feelings, where do they start? Mm -hmm. I think it might be like a Mm -hmm. misconception about which doctor to go to, as I don't think many have a relationship with a behavioral health provider. Is this something a primary care provider can assist with? And what does that visit look like? You mentioned during that examination to express the changes, but how is this tackled? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, that is absolutely within the realm of like primary care. So I probably right now am seeing more mental health kind of concerns than I'm, I normally would. And, um, and I, yeah. I think it's really important. So I would check in with your primary care provider, um, check in with, if you do have a mental health professional, I think that'd be great. You could also call your insurance to mm-hmm. see, um, if you don't have a primary care doctor, maybe you're, you're trying to wait to get established with one, but feel like, oh, I need to get the ball rolling. You can also call your insurance and see, okay, who's on my formulary from a mental health standpoint, mm-hmm. okay. um, maybe even starting with a counselor or a therapist. So there's lots of options available. I generally would, I mean, going to friends and talking to friends is great, but there is something different about talking to a professional. Absolutely. Um, And I think it's just a little bit easier sometimes to be more objective or honest or go through other questions that might be more uncomfortable with a friend. So I would recommend that someone 
talk to someone who who is either their primary care doctor, a mental health professional, counselor, or something along those lines. Yeah. And because by expressing these symptoms too, you're also ruling out other possible causes like anemia or low blood right. sugar, vitamin right. deficiencies, and other issues. Right. Thyroid. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. That's right. Yeah, and right now, especially this year, telehealth has become so rapidly available across so many specialties. It's easier now than it ever has been so convenient. To, get, to get help. Before we wrap up this episode, we want to talk to you about some screenings that we need to be aware of as our body changes in our 30s and 40s. Before we get to that, we're going to jump into something that changes the overall body. And that's our metabolism. Got it. <laughs> Let's do it. Oh, okay. <laughs> if you're seeing weight gain in your 30s, this might be why. The days of gorging without gaining weight are over, ladies. <laughs> Back at 21, you may have been able to eat the whole pizza yourself. Mm-hmm. But now you are going to have to work a little bit harder <laughs> to keep your body <laughs> trim and healthy. So we understand the metabolism slows generally as we approach 40. But what recommendations do you have for us in regard to changing metabolism? That's great. So I think there's a couple tools that can be really helpful. With metabolism specifically, the main way that you can increase your metabolism is by increasing your muscle mass. Okay. So when I think of metabolism, I think of someone who's laying down or sleeping, like how much energy are you spending? Okay. And the, the tissue that expends the most energy at rest is your muscle. So ironically, exercising is really critical to maintaining good metabolism. Also, you know, then there's other factors like if you have maybe a wider waist circumference and have some insulin resistance and then you're talking in different kind of realms, that will change your metabolism in a different way or if you have hypothyroidism or hyperparathyroidism. So there's so, it really gets pretty complex and it's helpful to kind of go case by case with a patient kind of in front of me. But, But in general, like, Doing things that build muscle mass, that help if you're noticing that your body's gaining weight, just really evaluating how many calories a day that you're eating and maybe calculating and figuring out how many calories you need. That changes over time. So as we age, our body needs fewer and fewer calories. And so just adjusting our diet to match our health needs. And if someone's in a, you know, a state of, of trying to lose weight, yeah, probably reducing calories by 500 calories a day. I often see people over-restrict rather than under-restrict. And then just being sensible with water intake and not taking artificial means. I, I'm just I'm not a huge proponent of taking um, different supplements and things like that to stimulate your metabolism. Okay. I think that can lead to other problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... We'd be remiss not to cover the loss of bone, especially with you in these decades. What do we need to know about our bone loss? Yeah, that is great. So this is probably one of my soapboxes because I feel like it's something we don't talk about often enough. And later on in life, it just matters so much. Um, So bone density is kind of like the strength of your bones. And there's only really the beginning of life is the only time when you can actually build your bone density. So up until you're like 28 or 32 is really the only time frame in your body where you can build more bone density. Okay. After that, so, you know, when, when we have reached our 30s and 40s, we've probably already peaked in terms of how much bone density that we're going to get. And that can be kind of discouraging. However, 
we still have good estrogen levels. We still typically have a pretty good metabolism. So it's still possible to make a really positive impact on your life and really at any stage of life, even if you've been diagnosed with osteoporosis, to still make a very positive impact on your bone density, quality of life, risk for chronic back pain due to osteoporotic fractures, due you know, even falling and breaking your hips, all those kinds of things. Like there's a lot of ramifications later on in life that, that can be impacted. And so really the, the Osteoporosis Foundation and also even the American Heart Association will talk about different exercise regimens and they tend to match. So it's really interesting that like the way you need to exercise for your heart, ironically, is also really good for your bones. Interesting. And so it makes it easier to kind of give recommendations because they all kind of yeah. go together. Sure. Um, but typically... I would recommend people try to get 150 minutes of exercise a week um, and then alternating that with weight-bearing exercises. So like having maybe two days where you do some sort of weight-bearing activity. So that can, honestly, any form of activity will be good. So if it, if it just kills you to do weights, there are other options. So you can do, now weights, I personally love doing weights. I do Me too. So I happen to, <laughs> I happen to love lifting weights. Me too. But... But there are people who really don't don't like that, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And there's other options. So even doing things like handstands or yoga, you can find alternative ways. Walking downhill, um, you'll get more impact on your bones that way. And then walking uphill, you'll get it on your muscles. So walking some hills would be great. Doing Tai Chi, which is more across your bones rather mm-hmm. than vertically, um, can also be really helpful. And so in general, movement and using your body will be better. Most of us are probably less active than we need to be. And any increase in activity would only benefit our health, not only our our bones, but also our hearts. So, yeah, I could probably go on and on, but I love love bone density. The other thing I hear you saying, too, is having a variety of exercises, too. Because I think a lot of times people get so pigeonholed into one type, like I only ride the Peloton bike. And it's like, well, that's great, but you need to do other other things that focus on different areas and different health aspects yeah. of your body too. So no, go ahead. I often see women like the different three different hinges, the shoulders, the hips, and the knees mm-hmm. being affected later on. So those are like mm-hmm. different functional areas that we need to maintain. So often when we're doing one exercise, we're not gonna hit all three kind of joint angle. That makes sense. Variety is great. So you mentioned that early in your life, you can build that bone density. How does someone do that? There's been a lot of debate back and forth in recent years. Take the calcium supplement. Don't take the calcium supplement. Do the vitamin D. Don't do the vitamin D. So what is your recommendation as far as vitamins? Do we do the multivitamin? Do we do a calcium? What are some ways that we can help build that if we've got listeners who are still in those building years? Mm-hmm. And even after too, right? Yeah. So calcium and vitamin D are the two supplements or mineral and vitamin that can impact our bone density the most. So for your teenagers, they probably need about 1,300 milligrams of calcium a day. Okay. And after, you know, after that bone building process, probably 1,200 milligrams of calcium a day. And then for vitamin D, probably around 600 a day, although I kind of 
dose mine based off of labs, so that can be a little bit different depending on how much sun exposure someone gets and those kinds of things. But calcium, I'm a huge fan of getting things through nutrition. Sure, right. um, So ironically, dark leafy greens and your spinach and kale and broccoli have tons of calcium. So I try to veer away from supplements if you're eating a diet with a lot of vegetables. Okay. Because the downside with or maybe some of the criticism to calcium supplements is that it might build up plaque in the heart yes. a little further. And so there can be kind of concerns with that. So... I do think it's good to get adequate calcium from a bone health standpoint. And if eating dark leafy greens is not possible, say you're on a blood thinner or different things that's not allowing you to do that, taking it as supplements okay. Makes sense. But if you don't have restrictions and there's other things, then I think eating a, a diet with lots of vegetables is honestly the way to go. Sure. Okay. Well, let's conclude with screenings. What appointments should I make? <laughs> well, make an appointment with your primary care. Done. <laughs> 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 And I would recommend just following up with your GYN regularly, too. Mm-hmm. And these are things that they would be well-equipped to talk about as well. Uh, I think we're all kind of passionate about keeping you healthy and keeping you strong with a good quality of life as long as we can. All right. We must, like we should almost insist, that you play a rapid-fire Q&A with us so our listeners can get to know you more. Are you up for it? All right. Let's go. Okay. Pumpkin spice everything or apple cider? Mmm. Pumpkin spice. Yes. What do you do on the weekend or evening to unwind? Mm, I love to work out. <laughs> love it. What's a book that everyone needs to read? Mm, that's good. Let me think about that. I mean, so honest answer would be the Bible. Yeah, love it. That works for me. Absolutely. <laughs> Kendra and I do a Bible study together. We do. What products are in your purse or tote right now? Oh, let's see here. I probably have a screwdriver. I am one of those people. Yes. Oh, I'm going to call you if I need something. <laughs> some lip balm, probably some lotion, um, you know, definitely my wallet, and who knows? It's, it's kind of a like a Mary Poppins bag of everything. <laughs> well, what's your morning ritual? How do you start your day? Hmm. So first is coffee. So wake up. And that's the first thing I think about. I can already smell it. So make me some coffee. Yes. Kind of go from there. Love it. What is your favorite Bible verse or quote that you live by? Well, probably one of my favorite Bible verses, and I think part of it is, is because there's a tendency to want to feel like you have to do everything perfect. Yeah. Um, but just saying that it is by grace that you've been saved and not by works. And that's been really impactful to me, just feeling like, I have good standing with God just because of my love for him and belief in him and faith in him and not because I'm a good person or do good things. And so it just helps me to overflow with love rather than trying to earn it. Dr. Wanda Lowe, we can't thank you enough for this. We'd love to do it again. And for those listening who I'm sure want to get in touch with you, we'll put a link in our show notes to your office information. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. It's been really fun, and hopefully it's been helpful. And, yeah. Um, yeah, to do it again. Perfect. Well, thanks again for making time for us. We hope you take care. All right. Thank you. Bye. Wow. Right? Apparently, I can't eat a whole pizza anymore. Noted. <laughs> that was some seriously good information. If you guys enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend, and be sure to hit that subscribe button so you won't miss the next one. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll be back next time right here on Health Talks Now, a podcast brought to you by Baptist Health.
Thanks for tuning in to Health Talks Now. Staying healthy is a lifelong commitment, and Baptist Health can provide the support you need to lower your risks, improve your quality of life, and protect your long-term health. Visit baptisthealth.com to hear our other podcasts, learn about our services, and find more tips to help you stay a step ahead of your health. Baptist Health, be a healthier you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as medical advice. The content in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast is not designed to replace a physician's medical assessment and medical judgment. Always seek the advice of your physician with any questions or concerns you may have related to your personal health or regarding specific medical conditions. To find a Baptist Health provider, please visit baptisthealth.com.